Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we'll be talking with renowned Middle East scholar Gilles Capel about his latest book, Away from Chaos, The Middle East and the Challenge to the West, coming up after this short break. We see that the political language of Islam, which was the key to to social peace in the oil era, and which nurtured the competition between conservative Sunni Islamism in Saudi Arabia and so-called revolutionary Shia Islamism in Tehran, is now becoming increasingly irrelevant. Uh, What will this lead to? I don't know. Welcome back to On the Middle East. That's French scholar Gilles Capel from our interview, which is coming up in just a minute. First, I want to share with you something that's on my mind. Last week, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called Yemen the world's largest humanitarian crisis. Now, while a donor conference hosted virtually by the UN and Saudi Arabia produced $1.35 billion in pledges to help Yemen, and that may seem like a lot of money, but it's actually just more than half of last year's contributions. And that amount is despite a pledge of $500 million, about a little more than a third of the total amount by Saudi Arabia alone. Now, Guterres went on to say that Yemen is hanging by a thread, its institutions are facing near collapse, and its economy is in tatters. The numbers in Yemen are grim. Out of an estimated population of 28 million, a staggering 24 million need assistance, 4 million are displaced, and just this year, 110,000 Yemenis have contracted cholera. Seasonal floods could spark malaria and dengue fever outbreaks soon. Nearly half of the population is under 15, a potentially lost generation of Yemeni children. UN humanitarian coordinator Mark Lowcock said that COVID-19, notice we haven't mentioned that yet, but that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly, and this makes the already dire situation, quote, catastrophic. Now, although as of June 9, there are so far just 496 reported cases of coronavirus in Yemen, there are 112 deaths. Now, that's a fatality rate of over 22.5%, and that's compared to a 5.6% fatality rate worldwide. And of course, most importantly, because of the war and Yemen's broken health infrastructure, the number of infected is believed to be much higher. Now, Yemen should really be too big to fail, and absent a lasting ceasefire and political transition, Yemen, as well as Libya and Syria, where wars continue, uh, all three countries could risk collapse or chronic poverty and fragility for the foreseeable future. Yemen was a fragile, potentially failing state before the war broke out over five years ago, and it is now the largest humanitarian crisis in the world, as the UN Secretary General said last week. 
Guterres tweeted that, quote, ending the war is the only solution in Yemen, and he's right. The UN, Saudi Arabia, and the international community have in recent months backed a ceasefire, but the Yemenis themselves have become fractured, unable to agree among themselves on their future. That's no reason to give up. There's no lasting or sustainable human or economic development or political stability when wars continue. Until there's a ceasefire and the political transition in Yemen, it is really all just triage until then. This week, our guest is Gilles Capel. He is professor at the Université Paris Sciences et Lettres, PSL, where he is also director of the Middle East and the Mediterranean chair. Gilles is, simply put, a giant in the scholarship on political Islam. His books and articles, including his first book, The Prophet and the Pharaoh, Muslim Extremism in in Egypt, as well as subsequent books, uh, Jihad, The Trail of Political Islam, Terror in France, The Rise of Jihad in the West, and many more books and articles. These are, as we say, standard works required reading. His latest book is Away from Chaos, The Middle East and the Challenge to the West that just came out in English last month. And that will be the subject of our conversation today with Professor Gilles Capel, and that starts right now. We are here with Professor Gilles Capel, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Away from Chaos. Professor Capel, Gilles, welcome to On the Middle East. Hello, thank you. Let's start at the beginning. You talk about your early experiences as a researcher in Syria in the late 1970s and call the introduction to your book a testament for Syria. Please explain why you start there and how those early experiences in al-Sham shaped your evolution as a scholar. Well, you know, in the mid-1970s for uh, young at the time, it was young French scholars. Uh, we, we had a, a training center for our Arabic language in, in Damascus, and this is where we all went. And so uh, Syria was the first country I was exposed, the first Arab country I was exposed to as, as, a, as, as a young man. And I, I, I just loved it. And, uh, you know, most people in my generation felt the same. And this is why when the, uh, the terrible things that happened uh, took place in Syria, we were all uh, sort of taken aback. And um, when I went there uh, last time uh, in 2012, and I crossed the border illegally from Turkey into Syria, I was so, I was so moved. And uh, seeing what has happened since then, uh, definitely uh, not only broke my heart, but it also looked like it was um, uh, uh, this ordeal of the Levant uh, was something I was uh, trying as much as I could to to overcome. And uh, the the very title of the book, "A Way of from Chaos," is 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 an attempt to to look forward and to see how we could. Uh, uh, get out of that uh, that catastrophe and try to 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 build something anew out of the ruins. 
Jill, you have done groundbreaking research and scholarship on Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood, including, I should add, The Prophet and the Pharaoh, Muslim Extremism in Egypt, which was published in 1985. And of course, uh, your work in subsequent books and articles on Islam, Egypt, and the region. Tell us about how some of the trends you describe in Away From Chaos, your newest book, led to what we call the Arab Spring. And how has it played out in Egypt? I mean, with the resignation of Mubarak, the election and then toppling of Morsi, the Sisi presidency. And has the Brotherhood been dealt a death blow in Egypt following all these events over the last nine years or so? It's, it's a long story, of course, but it's, you know, it, uh, this book, uh, Away from Chaos, the, uh, the Middle East and the Challenge to the West, it, it is in a way uh, a book. Uh, about the, uh, the, the the elapsed half century, uh, starting from the October War or the Yom Kippur or Ramadan War, whatever you prefer, of October 1973, when oil became the commodity of commodities, and uh, you know called the shots in the region and in the world, until nowadays, and uh, by chance this coincided with my life as a scholar, because as you mentioned, I, I, I started in, in Syria in the, in the late 1970s as a student of uh, the Arabic language. And then I spent uh, three years from 1980 to 1983 in Egypt as a young researcher. And um, I was based in Cairo and I uh, embarked on a PhD research on uh, Islamist movements. No one was interested at the time. They, everybody thought I was totally crazy. But the guys which I followed assassinated Sadat when I was there. And this was, of course, a very uh, striking phenomenon for, for a young man at the time. And um, so um, I. Afterwards, um, you know, you had much easier access to the Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood, and even some jihadi or post-jihadi people. But at the time, under Sadat's uh, political repression was at its peak, and it was very difficult to uh, to have access. Uh, you know, foreigners were, were tracked by the secret police all the time. There was no internet. And you had to to get information uh, from, if I may say so, from the horse's mouth all the time. But it was uh, it was a <laughs> these were very formative years, if I may say so. And for someone like me who ended up sentenced to death by ISIS uh, in 2016, this was of course uh, uh, some good uh, first training experience. As as of today. Um, this uh, challenge and this uh, competition between the, the military on the one hand and the Brotherhood on the other were, in a way, two parallel structures that at times uh, sort of cooperated and at times fought against each other to rule Egypt. Um, this whole system started in the in the early 1980s when I was there. When after Sadat had co-opted the the brothers, uh, so that they would uh, they would deal with you know the sort of the welfare state dimension 
of the Egyptian regime, of the four Manasseh regime, which had crumbled totally because of corruption, because of nepotism, cronyism, and the like. And um, so over those last 40 years, um, you know, this, this sort of, it was more or less of the, the same story unfolding under different uh, circumstances. Um, when the, the so-called Arab strings broke out in uh, January 2011 in, in Cairo, originally the brothers uh, who had nothing to do with that uh, would not risk, uh, would not bet on that. But, you know, after three days they decided that, you know, maybe they had some... Uh, uh, access to the military also who wanted the, the top brass wanted to get rid of um, of Mubarak and they had sort of uh, let go the the movement in Tahrir Square they kept some of the back streets open so that demonstrators could come and and uh, the brothers decided to to take the, a risk uh, but at the end of the day uh, the uh, the generals decided that uh, they would rein everything in. And I remember one evening in, in Cairo meeting one of the leading uh, generals of the SCAF, of the Supreme Committee of the Armed Forces, who had explained to me, this was December 2011, their, their vision of things, you know, we're going to let the brothers win the elections and then they're going to be so inept that the people are going to call us back. At the time, I thought this was totally crazy, but this is exactly what happened with a little help from their friends in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, of course. And um, I believe that nowadays, uh, the brothers have been dealt, for the present time at least, a, a death blow because the challenge to the challenge to the military was was too too high and also uh you know it's not an egyptian issue anymore egypt is is uh, is is taken hostage uh by the uh the sort of fault line within the sunni world the competition for power between the pro-Qatar groups, i.e. Uh, Turkey, uh, Qatar and the Muslim Brothers, sorry, the pro-Brothers group, and the anti-Muslim Brothers bloc, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, uh, and Egypt. And um, as long as the, the balance of forces is not tipped towards the Brothers, I don't think that they have a chance to resurface in Egypt. Most of them are either in jail or exiled uh, in, in Turkey, in Qatar for the time being. Help us understand, since the overthrow of Gaddafi, how the forces you describe in your book, the trend lines regarding oil, regarding the split in the Sunni bloc, have played out in Libya. And what do you see as the stakes now in that conflict, in that country? Well, Libya, uh, you know, under Gaddafi was a country that had been totally emasculated politically. I mean, Gaddafi uh, reigned over everything. And uh, uh, actually, I visited Libya uh, in those days. And, you know, this was the most horrendous dictatorship that I ever experienced in the Arab world. And, you know, there are some competitors, actually, for the, for the job. But, you know, he was the worst, clearly. And uh, so uh, he had destroyed everything. 
And um, when uh, the sort of upheaval started in Benghazi, in uh, Cyrenaica, in the eastern part of Libya, um, because the West had not been very responsive to what had happened in Tunisia uh, a couple of few weeks before, then Britain and France decided that they would help uh, the, uh, the rebels uh, with, uh, as was said at the time, with America leading from behind, to quote from President Obama. And um, so uh, the West bombed uh, Gaddafi's tanks, destroyed his army, which saved the life of Benghazi's inhabitants at the time. And uh, finally, Gaddafi was stopped by a French strike and killed in uh, uh, unclear um, circumstances. Uh, but um, the West was unable, just like America had been unable in Iraq, to change a military victory into a political success. And uh, the sort of, you know, pre-Kazafi system rose. Uh, Libya was torn in between tribes fighting for control over oil, blended with ideology, pro-brothers, anti-brothers. And then it became the playing field for Sunni competitors for hegemon. Um, in the uh, this eastern side in Saranaika, you had a very strong backing from Egypt, from the Emirates, and to a lesser extent from Saudi Arabia for General Haftar. And in Tripoli, in the western part of the country, a strong Turkish plus Qatari um, help for the Tripoli government. Nowadays, to some extent, uh, Libya has become an extension of the Syrian conflict, with uh, Turkey sending to Tripoli, to the uh, pro-brothers and philo-Qatari side of the country, former Syrian rebels crossed into Turkey, uh, got a shower there, and then were shipped to Tripoli to fight against uh, pro-Russian uh, militias and uh, proxies who fight on the side of Jan Marshal uh, Haftar in the East. So, you know, there's some sort of a strange echo between Libya as a sort of protracted uh, Syrian battle, battlefront and, and, and the Levant. Uh, what will come out of it uh, is, has, doesn't have much to do with Libya, actually. I think it has to do with the capacity of, either, of both uh, Russia and uh, Turkey to sustain uh, this uh, confrontation. Both countries now are in dire straits. Uh, Turkey uh, is badly hit both by the coronavirus uh, pandemics and also by uh, you know sluggish economy. Uh, Erdogan is is uh, heavily challenged uh, internally, and Russia uh, sort of played the sorcerer's apprentice when. Uh, Putin decided, you know, to uh, to go for um, uh, this this sort of game uh, with the oil prices, and uh, 
uh, he and the Saudis uh, wanted to oust American shale producers from the markets, uh, opening uh, their fields and, uh, and producing much more oil. But the COVID crisis hit them back, and uh, now uh, they were badly hit by the crash of the oil market. Hence, uh, Russia needs needs cash, and uh, it's probably uh, willing to to negotiate. But it's too early to say. Gilles, uh, tell us about the experience of the Arab Spring in Tunisia. How did it play out there? And do you see that as a success or a model of uh, what might be possible? And where do you see the trajectory in that country? Well, Tunisia was the, or still is, the only Arab country where the Arab so-called spring, because it happened in uh, December 2010, actually, which was not yet spring, uh, was uh, politically a success, i.e. you have democratic institutions in Tunisia. It is the only country that uh, underwent those um, uh, upheavals in 2010, 2011 that, uh, you know, resulted ultimately in uh, a democratic system in spite of all its shortcomings, economic uh, uh, problems, um, terrorism, and the like, but it it holds. I mean, in uh, in Tunisia, you have freedom of the press, uh, you you have a, a vivid uh, civil society, and people don't go to jail for their opinions and the like. Um, actually, I believe that uh, Tunisia, you know, after. Uh, they got rid of Ben Ali, and this is something that they managed to do because there was a sort of social alliance between the truly disinherited, as you would say in the States, and the middle class. They uh, both wanted to get rid of the dictator, which was just irrelevant on top of being cruel and inept. And... um, and then there was a compromise that was uh, that was searched in Tunisia. Um, originally, uh, the uh, Islamist party and Nahda uh, managed to win at the first free elections in October 2011 because uh, they were the only um, player on the political field that was able to rein in uh, the riffraff, as, as they would say from the, an upper-class point of view, i.e. Uh, to keep some social order. And uh, this is why part of the Tunisian middle class, even the secularists, decided that they would back uh, this sort of um, neo-Muslim brother or moderate Muslim brother group because they could uh, manage to to keep the country going. Uh, Nahda, uh, in a coalition with leftist uh, parties, did not really fare very well and was unable to face the challenge of Islamist and jihadi terrorism. Uh, uh, Jihadists linked to ISIS managed to kill a number of uh, 
uh, Tunisian politicians, uh, foreigners and the like, uh, soldiers, uh, policemen. And then uh, the Islamists, um, uh, you know, left power and were replaced by a secularist group. And nowadays you have a sort of blend co uh, be between uh, moderate Islamists and moderate secu secularists who rule the country. Um, this is a sort of balance of power which um, is okay because if many people identify with this government or do not not identify with the government but this is not great to make decisions and uh, to uh, live up to the huge challenges of the country so in a way uh, tunisia came out rather well because you know there's freedom of speech you don't go to jail you whatever for your opinions and the like there are democratic institutions but but the but the economy is is sluggish and as a you know a contrast to nearby morocco for instance where uh, it's a different political system but nevertheless there are much many more job opportunities and tunisia which has a vibrant um, academic system and, and still some good universities in the for the arab world in comparison sees most of its graduates uh, get out and uh, find jobs uh, in Europe in the ca if they can, but it's, it's more and more difficult go to Morocco and uh, and uh, have uh, be, and be employed there. Let me ask you a, a kind of macro question as we're talking about uh, what was called the Arab Spring. Do you see the movements, um, the, the popular demonstrations and all that's unfolded since 2010, December 2010 in Tunisia, and then 2011 and after, has any type of verdict on the role of political Islam or the nature of governance and how the states were organized in the Arab world? And if so, what, what is that verdict and how does that carry forward, do you think? Well, originally, uh, you know, young, the young people who started the movements in all of those countries had nothing to do with political Islam. They were liberal, uh, they were postmodern, they were what have you, they were not interested in those religious issues. But as soon as the authoritarian states started to be toppled one after the other, um, it soon, it soon uh, you know, became obvious that those young people uh, were not very deeply rooted in society. It was uh, a thin veneer. Uh, they looked good on TV. They uh, sort of like occupied Tahrir Square, which, is which was okay for close shots. And in Egypt, if you're 100,000 people, you're, you're uh, close up. But uh, you know there are 100 million people in the background that you, which you don't see. And uh, those did not realize really identify with that they had sort of deeper affiliations with the sufi brotherhoods with the muslim brothers with the salafis groups with the army and um, because those movements were not that deeply rooted actually uh, they were uh, ousted uh, from uh, from from power 
as of late 2011, beginning of 2012, and you had more sort of ingrained, uh, deeper uh, political or religious movements that uh, came to to the front. And the same happened also in, in Syria, where originally the rebellion was sort of a pan-Syrian. You had, of course, a majority of Sunnis, but you also have some liberal Alawis, some Christians, some Shia and, and the like, some Druze. But after a while, uh, it became, uh, to a large extent, only a Sunni movement against the minorities. And, um, and this movement was... Um, uh, sort of hijacked by uh, jihadi groups, Islamist and then jihadi groups, because um, Arabian Peninsula countries saw in the eventual victory of the Sunni rebellion in Syria an opportunity to break the uh, sort of Iranian outreach from Tehran to the Mediterranean Sea through South Beirut or Tartus or Latakia. And um, this was, I think, not well perceived and well understood in the, particularly in the West, uh, because we still uh, dreamed about uh, rebels who uh, were the forebearers of democratic um, uh, visions and, uh, and who would topple the dictatorships of the, of the region and so on and so forth, you know people still at the beginning of the Arab upheavals thought of it as a sort of duplication of the 1989 uh, movements in, uh, in the former Soviet Eastern Europe. But the political culture was different. And, uh, and so there was a lot of disillusion. Nowadays, uh, you know, after a decade of war, of failures, of civil wars in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen, to name a few, um, I believe there is, there is a, a desire to, to find some sort, of, some sort of a solution because the, the, uh, the horror of the, of the war, of civil war, of... Uh, people being bombed, being tortured and everything uh, by uh, most worrying factions, antagonist factions, is, is such, a, such a trauma that uh, there, has to be, there has to be a way forward. Also, uh, if we talk about nowadays, the, uh, you know, the global balance of the, of the Middle East has changed. Um, oil was the name of the game since has been such since uh, the October October War of 1973, and after the Arab oil embargo. And um, nowadays, uh, oil uh, is unable uh, to uh, deal with the challenges of, of a region which has gone through a huge uh, demographic. Uh, expansion thing that there are a hundred million Egyptians now and um, if there is no post oil vision uh, the whole area is going to sink and this is the challenge which is taken up by Saudi Arabia among others uh, the Emirates also 
Qatar to some extent, but they have a very small population. And in that, we see that the political language of Islam, which was the key to the to social peace in the oil era, and which nurtured the competition between conservative Sunni Islamism in Saudi Arabia and so-called revolutionary Shia Islamism in Tehran, is now becoming increasingly irrelevant. Uh, what will this lead to? I don't know. But I believe uh, we are really at, uh, this is a watershed period for, for the Middle East. It is, its, uh, its place in, in the world system will not be as it was. And um, it, is, it is now facing its, its destiny its relation uh, with, uh, with Europe, which is uh, in its neighborhood, uh, much more than America. And, um, you know, there, there's a new era that opens in front of us. Think also, you know, after the virus pandemics and the fact that everybody was suddenly discovered that, you know, you had no uh, masks, you had no toilet paper, you had no medicine because all this came from the Chinese su supply chain. Now there is this feeling that, um, you know, you should sort of uh, come into a process of reshoring, I think you say in America, of relocalization in your neighborhood. And uh, this may be a chance for an, an opportunity for uh, countries in the southern and eastern shores of the Mediterranean. Uh, to what extent, you know, now that uh, the price of labor is, uh, is lower in Morocco than it is in China, for instance. Uh, so uh, why would you go to China if you can have the same job done in Morocco and, or in Tunisia or in Egypt, maybe tomorrow in Lebanon and Syria? And this is already what Turkey had started before Mr. Erdogan uh, went in the direction he went into. And um, so here we have, we have the, maybe the possibility of your future and uh, post-oil uh, 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 Middle East and North Africa. And this is a crucial uh, issue, particularly in, uh, in a post-virus world where you see new, new fault lines. Uh, between America and Europe, between America and, uh, and China. Well, of course, this depends a lot on who's going to be re-elected president in, in America in November, but uh, the, the Middle East challenges are part and parcel of that global picture to a large extent. Jill, um, I wanted to ask you about uh, Saudi Arabia, um, these, these trends you've described so eloquently here uh, in our interview and in your book. Um, how, are, how are they playing out in, in the kingdom, including the Vision 2030 efforts to reform the economy by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman? What do you anticipate for the future of the kingdom, both internally and its role in the region? Well, everybody now is uh, accountable to uh, the way the virus has been, the virus challenge has been dealt with. And uh, Saudi Arabia uh, coped with the challenge at a very early stage. And if you compare Saudi Arabia and Iran, for instance, 
Uh, in Iran, Khamenei, who's uh, largely dependent on the religious establishment, not only on the uh, RRCG or Pazdaran, uh, could do nothing uh, but let pilgrims uh, flock to the holy sites of Mecca, Medi uh, of sorry, of Qom uh, Mashhad. And uh, and uh, and you know uh, everybody was together, and they would kiss the tombs and lick and and strike and everything, which was a perfect recipe for the tremendous spread of the virus. And this is why Iran was hardly hit from the very start. So because they have very close relations with China, who are uh, you know they buy uh, a lot of Iranian oil at. Uh, Bargain price, so there are many Chinese there. In a contrast, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was uh, able to take the decision not to give any visa for Amra, the lesser pilgrimage, pilgrimage, sorry. And um, now there are words uh, uh, around that there is a rumor that the Hajj itself may not take place because of the pandemics. And this, of course, is a, a major um, issue in the competition between the ulama who have been severely weakened of late, the Wahhabi uh, ulama, and, uh, and, and the ruling family. So uh, will uh, the crown prince be able to deliver economically or not is too early to say. Some of the mega projects like the, the Neon, uh, Neon uh, uh, Computer City, uh, <coughs> sorry, on the northwest part of the kingdom are uh, probably challenged because they cost a lot of money. But um, at least uh, what this, the, the pandemics have shown is that um, you know, a number of rulers were able to um, get rid of uh, religious pressure, uh, even, you know, when with such issues as Ramadan, which took place during the pandemics, like, for instance, in Morocco, uh, no one could get out for iftar. And if you did so, you know, you would really be in serious trouble. Uh, the fact that uh, the crown prince was able to uh, suspend or uh, uh, visas and probably is uh, not going to allow for Hajj also shows that uh, for the time being he has the upper hand and he does not fear uh, religious retribution. You know, even in my country, France, during uh, our lockdown. Uh, people could not go to church, mosques, or synagogues, and everything for uh, you know cemetery reasons. But a number of Salafists uh, congregated, um, got together in apartments, saying that this issue of virus had nothing to do with medicine. This was uh, uh, Allah uh, that punished infidels and heretics. This is why Iran was, in their view, particularly hit and that the only way to get out of it was, was prayer. 
and getting together. And this, of course, is something that challenges, uh, you know, uh, the Moroccan authorities, the Saudi authorities. For the time being, I, I believe they, uh, they, they, have, they have won uh, politically, at least this stage. Now, the real challenge will be the, the economic issues afterwards, uh, employment, unemployment, the capacity to emigrate and, and so on. But um, uh, as far as Saudi Arabia is concerned, as of today, um, I believe the, the, the COVID-19 situation has been uh, dealt with. Uh, and, it, and it's a big issue, you know, for, uh, for a number of countries of the region to, to show that you have been able to cope and that you could assess firmly um, the capacity or the powers that be to, to be in control. Gilles, you've been a thought leader and scholar on the front lines of the West and Europe's engagement with political Islam. And when I say front lines, I mean it literally and figuratively. As you mentioned earlier, ISIS targeted you for assassination back in 2016 for your scholarship on the region. How do you see the evolution and relationship between political Islam and the West today? And where do you see it going? Well, depending on what you call Islam, quote unquote, you know, because in uh, Europe now uh, you have millions of, uh, of people uh, who are European citizens and uh, who are uh, from Muslim descent. Some of them uh, are uh, indifferent to uh, their religious heritage, like many Europeans are indifferent to their Christian or Jewish heritage. And, and sort of blends into uh, a secular uh, citizenship. Others uh, consider that this is important to them, and uh, even uh, on the social and political level. And uh, others turn that into, uh, uh, you know, fascination for ISIS or what have you. But fortunately, a small minority, but you know. In my country, France, we, we suffered severe attacks and we were also the first exporter of jihadists to Syria at a European level. Uh, so uh, I believe that this, uh, the ISIS phenomenon is now much quieter because the, the ISIS infrastructure was destroyed by uh, Western bombi bombing, while uh, Kurds on the one hand and Iraqi uh, Shias on the other were the foot soldiers for um, for the attacks against ISIS. And from what I judge uh, from my uh, students, you know, who do interviews with uh, jihadis in uh, in our jails, uh, the guys there still believe that the ideal was okay, but the method was uh, unconclusive. And they're, they're trying to find out another way to, to mobilize the masses on their behalf. I, I don't think uh, they will succeed. I mean, as, as such, they're a spent force. But uh, we see new fault lines uh, coming out. And, um, uh, you know, the social movements that uh, are now based on, on the race, 
that have uh, torn uh, America and which are now also coming to Europe after George Floyd's assassination uh, are interesting to are important to study because for the time being uh, they they remain largely outside the scope of uh, any religion but a number of islamist militants are trying to use those revolts in order to say that you know this is because the kuffar of infidels are racist because in europe they're inheritors of the colonial empire and they're, they're trying to find a sort of new legitimacy uh, in the um, hijacking of those uh, revolt movement against the police brutality. So this is something also to, to watch and to, to follow. For the time being, they have not really succeeded, but you know, uh, because we're still in the moment of enthusiasm in a way, uh, uh, that is to say, like it's an expression by Karl Marx, a moment of enthusiasm when different social and racial groups blend together how will it go uh, how will it uh, how long will it last this is a big issue for america first because we don't know to what extent this will uh, uh, help undermine uh, president trump's re-election or on the contrary uh, help him gather uh, people who are frightened by the by the revolts uh, and uh, take them to the voting booth but um, these you know there are, there is no such thing as a reconciled society i mean in a society a society is is always divided into fault lines uh, and uh, when the the parliament of the uh, representatives or whatever is becomes too um, too, too conservative or too, too um, uh, separate from the real stakes in society, then you have, you have street politics. And um, this, this is one of the things that I guess we have to, to keep a close eye on to because uh, one thing now, uh, which is very different from my youth in the 1970s, is that everything is global and uh, kids who demonstrated against police brutality in the streets of uh, Paris or London or uh, Rome had seen uh, the agony of George Floyd on their telephone, something which did not exist. You know, I recall when I was in Egypt in the 1970s, in the early 1980s, I would, you know, handpick leaflets by uh, radical Islamists. I mean, there was no, I mean, nowadays it's an issue of a click. So it's, it's uh, we, we live in a world which is far more globalized and where emotions travel mass, much uh, faster. Whether emotion can last, emotions can last and can develop into an organized movement um, well this is this is the big challenge but there are many entrepreneurs be they secular or religious who are interested in joining the bandwagon Gio, last question as a, a professor and scholar who continues to influence so many students uh, of the region what do you advise uh, aspiring students, scholars, journalists, those looking to get involved in the Middle East? I mean, is it um, 
more challenging than in the past, as urgent as in the past? And what do you see the trends among the young people that you come across in the field uh, who are interested in the region? Well, of course, the first thing I would recommend is that they, they grab a copy of Away from Chaos and read it through. But I don't know if, you know, uh, the young people are that interested in things past. Um, there is this feeling that, uh, you know, because we live in this sort of flat world, to quote uh, from Tom Friedman, uh, that they they believe that uh, you know things happen and they do they usually they tend not to understand uh, that um, uh, things are deeply rooted. Like this was probably the disillusion of the the so-called Arab Springs when everybody was fascinated with those young people on Tahrir Square in Cairo or Avenue Bourguiba in Tunis or, or wherever or Sahat al Lulua in Bahrain. And uh, only to discover that this was not deeply rooted. So my, my, my feeling is that they, uh, you know, in order to, to understand the present, let alone predict the future, it is important to put the, the past or the recent past into perspective. And this is what I aim to do, uh, based both on the uh, observation of things, because I was... Uh, I was an academic, and I, I'm still, I still am one for, the, for a few years only. Uh, and um, I was also a witness uh, at the times, a participant, some, sometimes a participant. And uh, I've tried to to put all all that into into a global a global uh, perspective. And this this is the kind of uh, of challenge I believe that many of us face now. And uh, uh, if we can uh, be uh, as objective as as possible and uh, and sort of get rid of ideology uh, to uh, to deal with uh, the situation in the Middle East and North Africa, this I believe will already be a, a major uh, a step forward compared to what was the case when I was younger. Professor Gilles Capel, author of Away from Chaos, the Middle East and the Challenge to the West, published just this year, just last month in May by Columbia University Press. It's available on Amazon and elsewhere. Gilles, thank you for joining us today on On the Middle East. Thank you so much. I will be right back with some concluding thoughts after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al-Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory 
of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Welcome back to On the Middle East. Well, Gilles Capel, in both our conversation and in his latest book, Away from Chaos, reminds us of the value of perspective. Those seeking to understand the new fault lines and trends in the Middle East will be at a loss if they don't know and understand the old fault lines. You can't know where you're going if you don't know where you are and how you got there. Now, Gilles also offered us numerous insights and takeaways about the evolving trends, what's happening now, looking ahead into the future, including the inability of oil resources alone to meet the expansive demographic and economic demands of the region, the increasing irrelevance of the discourse of political Islam for governance, the pressure governments in the region are feeling to be accountable for how they manage the COVID-19 crisis, and the shifting role of the Middle East in the global system. I was also taken with Gilles' point about how the rapid connectiveness of the region has produced both solidarity with those in the U.S. and the West protesting against racism and police brutality, especially among younger people in the region, but also an opportunity for Islamist leaders and militants to find a new legitimacy, as Gilles said, in hijacking these emotions. Thanks again to our guest, Professor Gilles Capel. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, and thank you for listening to On the Middle East. And please tune in next week and sign up for our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening. Thank you.